welcome to the Respective Solutions Podcast. Our mission at RSG is to create safe learning environments and support school professionals through resources that make a difference in education. I'm John Lewis, the host of the podcast, and we will be getting to know our Adams County community partners and discuss issues relating to the prevention of youth violence, as this is the Collaborative Violence Prevention Initiative. This podcast is being brought to you by Pennsylvania Taxpayer Dollars. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today, Jamie Gagliardi. She's the health educator and advocate with WellSpan Services. Hello, Jamie. Welcome to RSG Podcast. So happy to have you here. I was talking with Jamie before we, we started, uh, and I, I said to her that one of the things that I always observe when I'm out in in meetings and in the community, and I couldn't help but notice that Jamie is pretty much everywhere. I go to meetings here, or I go to an activity there, or somebody's speaking there, and Jamie is either speaking in the crowd or doing something. So I asked her to, does she sleep? You know, do you sleep? I do. It's very important yeah. to get a good amount of hours. Well, I'm glad you had time enough to meet with us. We want people to get to know you and the things that you do. You do some very important work within the community, establishing partnerships and, and creating things, and sometimes almost out of the air, which I think is marvelous. So she's busy. She's There's a list of things that she does. She's a Latino health educator. She works with the Family Health Council, um, the Hispanic American Center, and so many other places. There's a long list. Know that she's she's very well-rounded and, and very much out there in the community. So first off, Jamie, let's have the audience get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us about you? Thank you so much for inviting me. Sure. I am very um, grateful to be here. Well, I am originally from South America, Colombia. I was born and raised um, in Colombia. And then I came to the United States to pursue um, my degree and um, my master's degree. Originally, I was supposed to be in business, but then decided that I was going to do more of the uh, work with the immigrant community. So my master's is in international affairs and Spanish. And my hope was to work with um, nonprofits in the Washington, D.C. area that were working with uh, immigrants. I still uh, use some of my business background uh, on a daily basis. I feel that the skills that um, that I learned on those five years um, were very helpful. And I haven't stopped getting certifications here and there and and it's it's been part of the intellectual trajectory i feel that, that that's um that's an important part of who i am and i have a family i um have two kids um my daughter who is in middle school and my son um unfortunately he had cancer passed away but he is in heaven um enjoying the uh, the, the afterlife, and I, he's very much part of the, what I am today. Um, how I became an advocate and um, and continue to work in healthcare. Did you start in the D.C. area and then somehow got and came to Gettysburg? Yes. Um, um, housing affordability was a big um, issue for for us when we started our family, and we moved to Maryland and Emmitsburg. And at the time, the hospital was hiring someone that would 
who would work um, with the immigrant community in Adams County. So I applied and they gave me an opportunity and they trained me. And ever since then, I had been um, developing, implementing, and evaluating health education programs. Okay, great. So could you expand a little bit about what you're doing now professionally? You may know about COVID-19 that has been uh, our public health um, priority in the last year. And prior to that, one of the biggest public health issues for our immigrant community was access to healthcare. Um, this was not only uh, an issue for the immigrant community, but for many, uh, many individuals who were uninsured or underinsured. So we go back to the basics of how to access healthcare for preventive care, for prenatal care, for immunizations and things of that nature. So I would develop tools to to get the word out about how people can access healthcare when they need it, mm-hmm. preventive care when they need it, and to utilize and master the tools that they need to access healthcare. And you also do smoking cessation and Yes, that came to my plate. One of my colleagues um, was in charge of the tobacco prevention program. I learned a lot from her, and she said, there's an opportunity Would you like to become a certified cessation facilitator. And it's been over five years since I've been um, facilitating that Freedom From Smoking program um, and other prevention programs, especially around e- um, cigarettes and vaping and the dangers of um, nicotine addiction. So by what mechanism do you get out to the community? How do they know about you? Right. And this is this is actually a very good point because the way that you started the introduction, that was not me in the beginning. Part of what happens when we go to grad school and we're pursuing that high-level education is that in some ways we get disconnected because we're like reading all the journals, reading all the books, writing all these papers, which... Obviously, you're very important to, to guide through the, the practice, the work that you're going to be doing. But then you're just reading all the time. On that first year that I worked for Wellspan, I got a fantastic opportunity to work hand in hand with our, one of our community nurses. And one of my questions to her was, okay, what do you think is best practices to do this program? And, which he said is, Jamie, you can stay in your cubicle all the time that you want, but if you really want to understand community health, you need to be out there in the community. And that to me was, you know, like you think you know everything when you're young. And I was like, okay, well, that makes sense, but maybe not. I think you still need to read all the journals and papers and then write all of these reports, which is a big part of what we do. But in reality, it, she was running. It, she had decades of experience and the trust that she earned from the community came from the work that she did in the community, going to schools, going to the soup kitchen, going to the food pantries, going to the daycare centers, going to all of these other activities that um, were organized in the community to bring people out of their houses, their uh, work sites, etc. Even going to work sites is another way that, that you get to learn about the community. Particularly those folks who work one, two, or three jobs, they're not going to have time to go to other events because they're you know, working, trying to provide for their families. 
And that is how I do mine. I would wait for a long time to have my classes full with people, but that wouldn't work because primarily the people I work with are working very hard. So you need to go to where they are. Um, and um, depending on the makeup of your of, of your audience, some of them may not have internet, so it's kind of harder to do it on social media, depending on the beginning. I think the last year has showed us that there are opportunities out there but in the beginning, when I started 12 years ago, that was not the case. We would do home visits. Then when people came to the doctor's appointments, I will have an opportunity there to help them interpreting, but also providing information about our educational programs. We will sign them up at the local community programs where they were going there because of their kids' uh, involvement in that. So we will try to recruit them to to participate in our nutrition programs, prevention programs, access to prenatal care was our first program. So we will do it after our church service and invite them for lunch and then get them into the conversation of where, where would you go if you need to access prenatal care and things, things like that. Really going to where they are. That was the reality of the community I work with. And I'm sure that that's kind of doing that study of your audience, that uh, understanding of, of who is it that you want to reach. Some folks, I mean, particularly now, may have online and social media accessibility, and that's how they're getting information. But it just depends. In my case, it was just that face-to-face interaction out in the community, not in my community. So they, they, you formed a relationship, they saw you out there. The thing I hear you talking about is developing trust. So you're developing trust with people, and that's irreplaceable. It's very important that we are honest about what we can accomplish. Um, we can't promise very difficult, impossible tasks because people would not come back to you. But you need to be realistic about what it is that, that you're able to help them with. So, for instance, if um, what they need is just to get an appointment to see a doctor. And you need to do the inventory of, are there really doctors that can view patients? And what is the status of, of, of that group of um, physicians or nurses or healthcare providers that are available to see new patients? Because then when you are talking with a family and what they need is very specific care, you want to be able to deliver either by telling them, unfortunately, we don't have that here, but let's try to work through different options. And that is additional work on the part of the advocate or the educator. It's not just telling them, yes, access to care is important. Good luck finding it. The trust is built the moment that we have done our due diligence of looking at the inventory. What are the challenges that those providers may have? And then really try to understand how to work around those barriers and then deliver the the families and the individuals are really looking for. And then in the beginning say, look, I may not have, and this is what I tell our families, I may not have all the answers or be able to fix all of the problems, but let's, let's, let's listen to what it is that it's happening. Let me call this person. Let me take a look and research first. And then, you know, don't make empty promises because that will break that trust. And I'm sure that there are many times we go to a house or a place and they have brought somebody else to say, speak to her, help her, she will help you, right? 
Right. And that's also important for um for those of us who work in social services and case management and building those boundaries. You you have to be firm but loving, right? And then there 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 are moments where you will not be able to fix it and then just try to do a, a warm handoff to another agency that may be able to do it or advocate for long term solutions which take a lot of time. <laughs> Well, depending on the situation, uh, if, if someone doesn't have a high-paying job or they're new to the community or maybe a single parent, they they need to be able to lean on somebody at least for a while to get to know what's going on and, and, and get some assistance. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're out there doing those kinds of things and helping them out. What do you see as the one of the biggest barriers to, to getting help in our community? What do you, what do you see? I think this happens to all of us is that we are only privy to that experience and reality that each of us have, right? It, it's not necessarily that we don't care about those people. The, the reality that we may not know a lot of people that look like those people, or we may not have had time to socialize with people that look different than us, or we don't speak the language, so we don't really have a lot in common. That's something that happens often that people feel or their beliefs is that they don't really have anything in common. And yes, language is a big barrier. However, the realities of immigrants or the realities of someone that has been here for generations may, may be different, but a lot of us have families want the best for our kids, want to provide for them. We want them to thrive and succeed, and I think that's a shared goal that will make this very much good. And and I think that's a barrier everywhere. The moment that we are able to step out of our own reality and existence to really look back and say, okay, what is it that makes me more like my neighbor or more like this other person that I would never know about? We will find that we have a lot more in common. But that's challenging because our nature is it's a little bit more selfish, more like um, self-involved. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't learn. To that's true. And I think our society has become so fast that we get, we do our high-paced job or whatever it is that we call and there are things to do there. And people just get into this routine and they don't step out. Like right. you said, in their own reality, they really check that out. Right. And, you know, I'm hired as a health educator to teach people, but I would say that I have learned so much from the people that I'm supposed to be teaching, that the education goes both ways. And I feel that that's something that all of us should consider, that we're all learners of the other experience. And hopefully that will make us better in the, you know, trying to convey the message that we're looking to either do our business or in our own families and ultimately in our communities. It's really to to look for that experience of the other. And that, and that I had a discussion with a friend of mine the other day. We were talking about the aging community and how you know people go to rehabilitation centers. And when I was growing up, grandma was at home. You know, grandpa was at home. They were recuperating at home. There was a, a bed in the living room or, or whatever, and you and you see us moving away from that. 
when I was younger, I worked for the agency on aging, and I would go into people's houses and do a variety of different chores. And one of the things, cutting grass or painting, one of the things I enjoyed most about that was they would talk to me. They would sit down. If I was painting outside, um, the gentleman picked up his rocket, and, and he would sit there for hours with me and just talk to me and, and tell me things, experiences he's had. I learned so much that I just, it's, it's one of those irreplaceable things. You know, it broadened my horizons, those those experiences. I couldn't wait to get back there. I, I understand what you're saying with, with with that dynamic. You can really understand um, just by listening, just by talking, opening up the door a little bit. Understand that everybody has the same issues. It's just that we have to get together on it a little bit and talk about those things and, and, and uh, know that we're all pretty much the same. Right, and you know, like, what you said about your grandparents is that is the wisdom that goes over that communication process of you listening to maybe they're just saying something of how it was for them back in the day. Right. Or maybe they're even just complaining about this is not how it was done. But that also illustrates that things were constantly changing and that we wouldn't know that unless he or she would tell you, right? And we need almost to have a training on opening our minds to really listening to have those experiences made part of that person's identity because it obviously grandparents that was something that it's you know was important for them sure do you find that the people that you're working with are um, guarded more than they used to be uh, when you first started you know really you have to work hard to earn that trust have you developed enough street credit as it were that, that you're okay i one of the things i remember i would connect with people that were like my age group right and it was easier for us to talk about you know we, we were raising kids and maybe watching the same soap opera like watching the same media and that helps you connect i i find that over the years it that younger group of folks because of that same reality. They're not raising kids that are in my age group. They are maybe trying to go to college. They consume different media. That has become a little bit more challenging. And they don't necessarily speak Spanish. They are more into speaking English. And that that is always, I, I feel like, a, a challenge for all of us. You know, like that generation, how people are consuming media that looks different. I sometimes don't understand the jokes. You know, and even when you're learning a second language, that's that's also constantly changing. And I I do think that for some folks I um, trusted, others may not necessarily know me, even though I have been in the community for a long time, and that's fine. I mean, I just, I'm not trying to, you know, win a contest of popularity. But I am curious to see what is it that they are interested in, um, how they are becoming more advocate. They're advocating for other things that maybe for me in the past was something that I was interested in advocating. So just learning from that experience, um, hopefully we'll build some of the trust. I may or may not agree with what they're <laughs> advocating, but I, I think the point is to have the conversation because I may not be aware of what their experiences have been as, you know, 
second or third generation. Is that your greatest challenge, or is there something greater than that that you've experienced that you can share? I think that's probably my my main challenge. There's so much bandwidth that you can devote to research how people are thinking, and um, and I feel that that technology gap of how I may be able to access certain information, it, it's out of my reach. Um, that has, I've noticed, for instance, the way that people chat and text is short emojis and, and, you know, trying to learn that language. It's, I already had to learn one, so I have to learn that. But at the same time, my time is limited to, it, I do think that that's a challenge for everyone that is trying to work in, in communicating messaging. And so that's when you reach out to folks who may have the expertise, who may have done the work. Hopefully they're humble enough to see that we also bring wisdom to the table and try to find the middle ground where we can work together. The, and, you know, that's the example with technology. A lot of people would say that one of the main challenges is the access to technology. But I think that that's also in that level of language. How is it that people are communicating? The tool is technology. Mastering that technology requires a certain language, a certain set of words, a certain set of skills. But that's a big part of that language of, of those folks who are able to navigate that. Um, so I will put those two there together. Do you find that that is a barrier, the technology barrier for, for people here? Yes. Part of it has to do with how user-friendly those technologies are. And so you look at language, are they in plain language? Do they have very simple words? Are they intuitive, right? That's one of the terms they use. Many apps have incorporated all of those ease of you, you know, use um, tools. Primarily because they're serving an audience that is English speaker and have the means to support these technologies. Um, immigrant communities, if they are in the low income category, I mean, they still want to use the technology, but they're not part of the group of people that will put a lot of money into those companies that are developing these, right? So it's the kid, their kids, maybe like the kids that are able to, to, to navigate these tools. If I, I don't have the full answer to how to fix the problem, but I do think that it comes at the top. The companies that are developing the technologies have to make those decisions with a lens of diversity and inclusion of all of the audiences that may be potential clients to these tools. And then once the engineers and, and those folks who are super smart developing all of this programs and softwares understand that when they're developing this, they need to keep in mind the end user, who sometimes will be an immigrant who is not a native language speaker of English, and that at the same time, you have to build that trust. Who is it that they're learning this app from? For safety reasons, like a lot of people are afraid that their information is going to use inappropriately, either to be shared with immigration authorities or somebody's going to sell the to somewhere and it's with nefarious purposes. It's not different than other people that are, you know, like maybe like in the elderly population, we tell our grandparents, don't click on things, don't send money to any princess of some other place. 
it's the same for our community because we have been able to deliver those messages. And then now we're telling them, yes, let's use these tools. Wait, but you told me five years ago that I shouldn't click on that. <laughs> it, it's kind of, all those things go hand in hand. The people that develop the technologies, the person that is teaching these folks to use the technology, and then advocating for the safety of these technologies and that they are ethical and that they are, you know, hold like the information that's private and not going to be shared with third parties and things like that. I, that's my only, I've been thinking about how to face the problem, but that's perhaps where I've seen maybe more potential and then getting people in the community who are trusted and that who are tech savvy and that, that are able to convey the message that it is possible. Even if you are afraid of computers or do not know about that, that you can learn, that you are a, you have the capacity to learn these skills. It may take a while. You know, you've been in education, but it, it's, it's really helping people believe that they can do this, that they will be able to succeed in this small task of using a tool. Um, and then continuing to, to build accountability around the process, right? Because you can teach them once and then they have to be able to teach you back what they learn so that then that closes that cycle of education, that they're able to teach back. It's, it's, also part of that solution. I think that is so, I don't say misunderstood or maybe not really isolated to be one of those things that people really need to get, get on board with because you have all these other things. You, know, you, have, um, you have poverty, you have cultural dynamics, you have all these things. But without that technology now, these days, you can be lost. So much resources come out of contacting people and and that's the way people are sharing, etc. So that's that's a that's a real that's a real issue. You're absolutely right in terms of bringing people together to get the trust to speak to the technology, and then give people the wherewithal to do those things. That's enormous. And it may take a few generations of people mm -hmm. to see it soon, but when people get frustrated because they couldn't do something, they also have to have the tools to elevate it or get involved or understand how is it that you fix it instead of just complaining about it. Um, because in the process of learning how difficult it is, how big it is to change it, then you will see, okay, well, I really don't have time. I don't even know how to build an app, but maybe I can, I can try this other alternative that will support the overall strategy to fix the problem. It, it, it's almost like you have to give hope that there's something that you can actually do to improve the situation instead of just, oh, this is just terrible. It's so much work, we're not going to go anywhere. Because that's, that's not productive either. You just really want to be able to empower people to do something realistic in their own terms, right? It's very easy to say, oh, it's technology's fault. But not really. Because of technology, we have been able to accomplish many things. It's not perfect. Smart people develop things. We just need to make them better for all, and and that takes a little bit from all of us. Sure does. In, in terms of the technology you teach, what are the areas that you focus on? Right. So right now there is one very specific tool that we are looking to help people feel confident using, which is my Wellspun, which is our electronic health record portal. 
it's one of the of the tools that we have for patients to communicate with their providers. Um, they can access information about their health records, their labs. Uh, they can email their providers. And right now, they could get a COVID testing order, or uh, when the vaccine becomes available, they can also schedule uh, an appointment to get their vaccines. Now, because it's online, it's a portal. It's it's important that people understand how it works. How do you create an account? All the information is confidential, so there is a lot of questions that people may feel weird answering on a computer. So part of the education is to explain, is this a tool that you're interested in using? And if it is, let's let's listen to what may be the challenges for you to open an account. If they feel like, no, no, they don't want to do it online, that's fine. Just know that it is available for you. It has proven to help folks with feeling that they are more in charge of their information, right? Because if they need, let's say they need their immunization records for when the kids have to go back to school, right? And they can get a hold of their doctors, their pediatrician's office. They can actually go in if they have jurisdiction to access obviously the, the kids' information. They can print out that report and then you know, they finish that check that they need to bring to the to the to the, the school. Yeah. I was just thinking that'd be very helpful with um, new student registration. Yes, and I knew that we advocated for that because I get so many calls. Can you help me call my pediatrician on the last word? Doesn't I'm like, sure, I'll call you. And then I got so many. I'm like, there has to be an highlight. <laughs> and I understand the doctor's offices and they are doing all these other stuff. Um, so that's one one example, and and so then people say, okay, well, yeah, maybe this is a tool that will be useful for immigration documents. Many times you have to bring information about um, your health records, how many years have you been in the country, and that's something that shows that yes, if you if you have been here for a number of years, that shows the dates that you went to a doctor, and it it's helpful for those purposes as well, and many other things that they probably don't feel very comfortable emailing their doctor, but that's an option as well if they want to do that. And scheduling appointments, right? Many times they just want to call and talk to someone, but younger people, they just want to go online, check the one that works for them, and be done with that, right? I think that that tool is very useful for younger Latinos, right? Um, if they are helping their parents with stuff, if they, if they want to help them, accomplish a small task like scheduling their appointment they can they can do them there and now again with with the vaccination efforts because we're only able to do them by calling the call center or through the portal we my goal is to try to get more people to feel confident and that they have the tools to use the the my wall screen account it's in spanish now so that's a big win for us um, because now they will be able to call a number if they get stuck in the process. And I believe it's possible. I know that people may feel fear of the app, but I do know that we have the ability to overcome that fear. That's very helpful, that information, going to one spot to do all that. That's great. And I think once people get confident in doing that, that they'll see, and I'm sure you've seen that, that thing open up to that and it's a great place for them to communicate with uh, the medical community for a number of different things so that's yes. great you know and even with the advent of like telemedicine we did a lot of the um 
COVID testing, like before they would go through the test, they would meet a doctor via Zoom. And at first, we're like, oh, they're not going to do it. But then with time, we noticed that more people were feeling comfortable in doing it. My, my take on it is always advocate for all of the tools, the telemedicine, the video conference, the conference with the, with the nurse or the doctor on, on the computer, but also continue to have the face-to-face interactions, um, particularly for those communities that don't really like to be like on the phone. Again, it's making decisions in the lens of a diverse audience, and that continues to be my message to um, to my colleagues, to the leadership that, that I work with, and to just whenever you're making a decision, look at it in the lens of how is it inclusive of all, particularly those who may have barriers, because it's not always a priority. And then there's only a few of us trying to advocate, and and I do think that that's where that business background has come handy, is because I know that when people have to make business decisions, they look at the set of the risk management tools and they look at what what is it that our bottom line is and things like that. But but we should always be mindful of that. Is that something you would tell somebody coming into the the business as it were to you know to work in in nonprofits? Is that something you would tell them or or would you give them different advice about how to work in this environment? I think because it depends on, on, on the mission that, of the work that you're trying to do. But yeah, I do think that when we're making decisions, we, we should really look at that inclusive. You know, what are the people, who are the people, they know very well with the data that they collect, right? They know what, where, where are the gaps, who are the people that are more at risk. And then when you're managing an organization, you have to like, balance it right you need to make sure that the bills are getting paid that you're fulfilling the mission statement and always keep in mind that um that you're not only reaching the majority but also the, the other set of groups of groups of, of your your community and and then that may illustrate some of the challenges and then connect with folks that may help you do it um it may be difficult because there's not many leaders out there they are, but they don't know how to how to support these organizations. But it's a starting point. That's a, that's great advice for someone coming out. Who was it in your life that you could say was an inspiration to you to to do what you're doing today? Wow, well, so my parents. They're well. My dad is in Colombia. My mom moved here with us. the The reality of growing up in South America, in a country that had had so much internal conflict, it, it's a different experience. It, it teaches you a lot of resiliency and what's important uh, in terms of work ethic and family values, but also to really understand that your reality can change over time, right? You can one day have everything. And then something tragic may happen, and then you didn't have the things that you had before. So it's going to be up to you and your support system to figure out how how important was that that was lost, what is the meaning of that loss, process the loss, feel the feelings, and start to rebuild, right? If that's what it is. 
I feel that I learned that resiliency from my dad, from my mom. They're not perfect, but they had all of those values and 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 that is and they that they did both work. Um, my mom uh, worked, and me and my sister were like you know study a lot. <laughs> but they always also this is something important. They work very hard, but they also always make time for fun. You know, your family primarily. The, those were very important things trying to find that balance also because you don't know what could happen and is it, are you going to be able what if you if you the future is unknown pretty much because of that constant reality around you that has to be they touch you and and has it that you build that resiliency and um i was brought up catholic so that that's also what a lot of the jesuit teachings and all of those philosophies of life were embedded in, in the way that I think too. It sounds to me like they were telling you you could only deal with what you could control, what was like the here and now. Right. And and don't squander a, a, an opportunity to have some fun within reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, what's next for you in all this? Well. We're in the present, in the right now. There is an opportunity to continue to learn new technologies. We are never ceasing to learn. I tell people, you, you, it, I think it's a myth. I don't have the fact, you know, the, the resource to support this, but I, I don't think that we cease to learn at a certain age. <laughs> and actually, that, that's some of the brain plasticity science. But I think specifically will be how can we use technologies in ways that we can connect those who have been disconnected before and then make the access to those technologies actually useful. I don't want them to be hours and hours watching videos of things that yeah, maybe look entertaining, but they're not they're not bringing value to their day-to-day -day lives. We want it to to you know make your lives lean <laughs> like we use in business. How can we do that work in a different ways? So that's something that I'll be working on in the next week or so, and then the rest of the year I'll continue to work on efforts to, to help people get vaccinated if that's what they, what they want to do. I am very interested in continuing to work on counseling, pursuing a counseling degree, because I feel that you can move up from the organization, but you should also continue to do that face-to-face -face interaction so that you're not disconnected from from the lives that you're hoping to touch when you move up, right? I, I think it's, it's probably very difficult, but, you know, we should try it. And if it doesn't work, then it works. And this will be, will be doing, I'll be doing something that brings a lot of value to me. I'll still be here in Adams County. I love this community. I learned so much from so many people that live here through generations or newcomers. And well, there's so many other things that we can talk about, but we may be able to do that another time, I hope. So if people need to get in touch with you, how do they do that? They can call my number. It's 717-337-4264. The extension 6 is the one that they can reach. I prefer if they call me. But they can also send me an email, which is my first initial, Y L R B G A T L I A R D I at Rosman, like the word here. 
I'm not on Facebook, so that's probably not gonna work. But um, yeah, that's what I tell people just call, and if I'm not just leave a message, please always leave a number to call back, call or email. It's the best way to to reach me. I try to get back to people within forty eight hours, but um, I just I think to I mean if it's obviously an emergency. Well, I know how busy you are, and I can't thank you enough for for allowing me to hold you here for this long to talk about these things. I, I really do appreciate it. I value the work that you do. And I and like I said earlier, I see you everywhere. So, you know, thanks very much for what you do. And, and thanks for coming on today to, to talk to them about what you do and let people get to know who you are. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. You can find out more about the Respective Solutions Group on the web at www respectivesolutions.com. You can also find the RSG podcast series on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts.